The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Jessica Hall, retirement reporter for Market Watch. With me today is Susan Hirschman, Director of Wealth Management at Schwab Wealth Advisory. Welcome, Susan. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, so every day, 10,000 people turn 65, and by the year 2030, all baby boomers will be at least 65 years old. Baby boomers are starting to hand down more than $53 trillion to their heirs in one of the greatest transfers of generational wealth in history. So how do baby boomers balance their retirement goals with this desire to pass on a legacy? Yeah, that's a question we get often. And I like to say two words, process and planning. So there's four steps that boomers have to think about when determining what is for their retirement and what is for their legacy. So the first step is what I say, I call your wealth status. One is determine your wealth status. And what I mean by that is, do you have a projected wealth deficit or are you gonna have a wealth surplus at the end of the projected plan? And to determine your to determine that, right, what we need to understand is how your current savings aligns with your life expectancy, your current spending, your future spending. So in other words, what we're trying to uncover is will there be money left at the end of the plan at night, at, at the end? And if you have an expected wealth deficit, meaning you outlive your money. So what do you need to do today to make some changes to enhance your situation? And one of the questions to ask yourself, right, in terms of legacy is, are you being too generous right now with your kids and putting your own future at risk? So first step, deficit or surplus. And then if I have an expected surplus, meaning at the end of the plan, is it projected that I'll have significant assets left, if there are, then we start thinking about what do I want to do with those assets? But one step before that I like to add in is a step two, what I like to say is you consider your what if. So if I have an expected wealth surplus, I also want to make sure that I'm covered for any unexpected costs. So are there any things that I should consider? So am I protected against, you know, any long-term care costs? And see how that comes into my plan. And once I've done that, so I've determined my status, I considered my what if, and then the third thing is then reflect on really what does your legacy mean to you, right? What is it that you want to do? Do you want to provide for your family? Do you want to give to philanthropic endeavors? Are these gifts meant to be during your lifetime? Do you want them to pass at your at the end? And really, like, 
why. It's really important to understand the why of your legacy. What are you trying to accomplish with those dollars? And then this fourth step is then I know what I have, I know what I want, and then lastly, I can take action. And that's where I can put in all the estate planning tools and techniques and trust structures family wealth mission statements, and on and on and on. So it's really important to follow a process and to really analyze what you have, some of the what ifs, the why behind your legacy, and then take specific action. And what we found is that what all this does for you, it gives people a sense of choice, a sense of comfort, a sense of clarity, and a real sense of control. And um, in fact, according to Charles Schwab's 2023 Modern Wealth Survey, 64% of boomers with a documented plan feel more control in their finances. So the answer simply to your question is process and planning. That makes perfect sense. So what financial literacy is needed among the younger generations to make sure that this transfer of wealth goes smoothly? Um, you know, before we go into what, I always like to take a step back and talk about the why. Like, why is it so important? And the reason that financial literacy is so important is that most wealth transfer challenges are due to a lack of a sense of stewardship towards that wealth. And what causes this mismanagement of the wealth is often a lack of communication, a sense of empowerment, and financial education. And so what the goal of financial literacy is, is to instill into the next generations like a really like healthy attitude and respect for wealth. But I think it's really so important to understand this. What I find is when we talk about financial literacy, people start thinking about concepts. They start thinking about explaining yield curve, all those kinds of things. But financial literacy is not only about what I like to call the numbers, right? It is so much more. It's also and very much about values. It's about the values. It's about the vision. It's about the purpose of the family wealth today and tomorrow. So I like to say to people, when you think about financial literacy, it's twofold. One is values, vision, and purpose. And then the second is the numbers, is financial and investment knowledge. So um, let's first focus on values, vision, and purpose. What is that? So basically what we try and do here at Schwab is encourage clients to get this down on paper, right? And, um, and how they do that is by creating what's called a family wealth mission statement. And in simplest terms, I would say, um, a family wealth mission statement, you could think about like the North Star, 
that each generation of a family can use to orient themselves as they become the inheritors and custodians of the family legacy. So how do you create one of those, right? It's really created by having open dialogues about the meaning of wealth. What does wealth mean to us? What is it that we want to accomplish with our wealth? How do we want our family to be remembered? And so having these dialogues about the meaning of wealth, the responsibility that accompanies it, and again, this, this concept of why. I keep talking about every conversation you'll hear me, I'll always say why. What is the why behind it? Because what we're trying to do is get people to emotionally connect to their plans, to their values, and the like. Because we find by doing that, they stay really committed to their plans. But um, I would say there's three goals, three main goals of the Family Wealth Mission Statement. One, as I was just talking about the emotion, is to help the next generation gain a, a, a true emotional connection to the past. The second is to develop a clear and purposeful mission for today. And then the third is to foster a sense of stewardship towards the future. So a family wealth mission statement is about the past, it's about the present, and it's about the future. And some people are like, what are you even talking about? Like, what does it even sound like? So it all depends, right? Family wealth mission statements are as unique as, as each family. They can be pages long, they can include family history, um, the good, the bad, the ugly, they can include learnings and lessons. They can include hopes and dreams. But they also can be just, you know, three sentences. So I'll give you a, a quick little easy one just to give you a sense of, of how some people like to um, write down their meaning of wealth and the responsibility and all those things. So here's a great example, I think. Our family mission is to protect and enhance the family wealth to assist in the pursuit of leadership in philanthropic endeavors, to secure a sound future for ourselves and for future generations, and to ensure that the future generation understands the responsibility of their inheritance and how they can benefit from it. And this is something that is passed on from generation to generation. And so what this statement here shares with the next generation is that you know, they really care about philanthropy. They really care about responsibility. They really care about stewardship. So there's a lot of different ways to do it, but putting it down on paper and reviewing it over time, adjusting it as the family changes somewhat is a really great way to make connectivity between each generation. Okay. But, um, oh, sorry, I thought you were going to say something. Sorry. But, um, so, what, if, what, if you, what if you don't want the next generation to have the money and you want to give it away instead? Um, so that's, some, some clients worry about passing down too much money to the next generation? Uh, yes, we're hearing more and more about that. Um, so, um, they do. And I, I want to say the three most common fears that we hear are one, that the kids won't be good stewards of the wealth. 
right? They won't use the money responsibly. They won't have a sense of, of grit, right, or drive or purpose. So the wealth will not allow them to create their own path and become highly functioning, productive adults. And then lastly, they won't be prepared for the social pressures or they'll be taken advantage of. So basically what I like to say, why they're so concerned is they're concerned that something that is so intended to make their life better and bring joy will instead be disempowering, damaging, and destructive to both the family and the wealth. Um, you know, it's interesting because we're hearing a lot about it by uh, like Warren Buffett, um, Michael Bloomberg, um, uh, Michael Bloomberg, Warren Buffett, um, Bill Gates, all those people. But um, it's not necessarily new um, because Andrew Carnegie in 1889 stated um, in a book called The Gospel of Wealth, said that he's going to be donating the bulk of his wealth uh, um, to charity. And the, his famous quote is, the man who dies rich dies disgraced. So, um, so we're definitely seeing more of it. And I think it's a lot because of social media, right? Years ago, wealth was not spoken about. And now it's much more, we all know, and it's very easy to understand someone's net worth. And so there's much more conversation about it. And I think fears stem from seeing what has happened in the past. So there are, um, it's not that these people are being left nothing all the time. Most of the time they're being left enough to live a purposeful life. Um, and oftentimes that there is a big foundation for them that they may want to work at and, um, and, and help use that money that their family made to, um, to, do, to do good. That leads us into the next topic, which is what are some of the biggest issues that need to be taken into account when making charitable donations or crafting endowments? Yeah, so, you know, I always like to say there's donations and then there are donations. So um, <laughs> what I mean by that is that we all make small gifts, right, of cash um, to charity. So the key here with small gifts, if you donate more than $250, right, to, uh, to a single charity, you need a receipt. But um, for many people now, um, with the standard deduction so high, around 14,000 uh, for single people and around 28,000 for uh, married filing joint, there has to be a lot of small donations, right? If you're gonna itemize. Mm -hmm. But let's say you're thinking of giving bigger gifts. And so when you think about bigger gifts, it's really important to think about the who, the what, the when, the how, and the why. So the who, right? So who do you want to give to, right? Is that charity a, um, 
a, a viable, ongoing charity. Um, you can go to websites such as Charity Watch or GuideStar or Charity Navigator, and they all analyze and rate charities to a varying degrees to see how good are these charities with the money that we give them. So um, who, and then also with the who is how do you want that money to be used? Do you want it to be used specifically or do you want it to be in their general type of account? So who is the first question? Then what? What is, what assets do I have to donate to charity? For example, do I have low basis stock? Do I have artwork? Do I have IRAs? Do I have um, cash, right? What is it that I have and what benefit would donating one of those of, over the other um, help me as well as help the charity? So looking at my assets as a whole and determining what would be best to donate to the charity. When? When is, is a really interesting question because when do I want the actual charities to receive money? It, do I want to, because the question often is, I want a tax deduction today. Let's say I just sold my business. So I want a really big tax deduction today to, um, you know, buffer some of the gain from my business or let's say I got a big bonus. But I don't know exactly who I want to give to right now. And so if I don't know who I want to give to right now, perhaps then it's giving to a charitable entity that in essence you control. So it's like a donor advice fund or setting up a private foundation so you get you give that irrevocable gift to either a donor advice fund or a private foundation and then over time you get to decide when to give those gifts and then the how is there's so many different ways to give um, to charity it's it's referenced as as a word called plan giving there's things called crap crut flat plus, right? All these, all these, um, all these letters. And so there's a lot of different strategies with a lot of different um, requirements and trade-offs. So it's really important to understand the how, and that's based on the when, the what, the why. And the why, um, talking about the why is, you know, what, going back to it, like, why are you giving today, right? Are you trying to leave a legacy? Are you trying to create a way to instill the sense of philanthropy amongst your multi-generational family? Like that's why donor advised funds and private foundations we often see used as a way to really get the family around and, and talk about philanthropy. So I've seen families with donor advised funds where every year, for example, they may have a contest. And the contest is um, you have to bring a charity to the family and you have to talk about what you did for that charity, if you volunteered, why you think this charity is, is good. And there's a little competition between the family and they decide as a whole who amongst them um, should get the largest share of the, 
of the charitable contribution that year. But it really instills a sense of philanthropy with, within the family. But I always say, like, answering those questions, the who, what, when, where, why, and how, what it does is it allows you to identify a charitable strategy that I think is the, it's the right solution at the right time with the right assets for the right reasons, and it gives you the right tax benefit. So who, what, where, when, and how equals good. <laughs> okay. So what, um, if you're transferring wealth to the next generation, I guess, what documents do you need to have in place to make sure that your assets get transferred correctly? Like what are the, what are the must have things to have in place? Yeah, so to make sure your assets, right, are transferred correctly, there's three biggies. One is the revocable trust. The second is beneficiary designation. And the third is a will. So rev trust, revocable trust, also called a living trust. So um, it's a document that allows individuals to continue to control your property while you're alive and transfer it to whoever they want after they die. And why a rev trust works is that it avoids probate. So assets that are held within the trust avoid probate. And probate could be, depending on the state that you're in, an expensive and timely procedure. But I like to think of a rev trust simply as like a shopping bag, right? It's just, you just put your assets in it. It could be changed at any time. That's why it's called revocable. Mm -hmm. The issue that we see often with revocable trusts are people put them in place, but then they forget to um, put any property. They forget to change the names of their bank accounts, of their investment accounts, of their property. So, um, so assets aren't held inside of that trust. The second, as we, we mentioned, is beneficiary designation forms. And so those are so important because beneficiary designation forms, they control, if something has a beneficiary designation, that controls who the assets are going to. People mistakenly think it's your will or your trust, but if something has a beneficiary designation, that overrides it. Okay. So it's so important to make sure that those designations are up to date. We like to tell clients that they should be reviewed, you know, on an annual, every, every year, every two years or so, just to make sure your situation is still status quo, right? And you see beneficiary designations on um, retirement plans, on life insurance, on annuities. And the reason I say it's so important because you know, I've been working for many years and I have seen many ex-spouses receiving assets that were definitely not intended for them, but because the owner never changed the beneficiary designation to reflect their current situation, the ex-spouse received those assets. And then the third is the will. So anything that's not held in the trust, anything that's not beneficiary designated gets allocated through your will. So those are the three biggies, but I also like to add a fourth, which is not necessarily a legal document, but 
I think it's one of the most important documents, and this is what's called a personal property memorandum. So what I'm talking about is um, a list of personal property, like your china, your jewelry, your collectibles, things that comparatively speaking to all of your assets may not have you know, great monetary value, but they have great sentiment of value. And why this is so important is because this area, your personal property, is where I can't tell you how many family fights that I have seen over, you know, small little sentimental um, statuettes, right? Right. And then some people also include this to include the why, like why am I, I'm giving you my pearls because you used to wear them every, when I was getting dressed on Saturday nights to go out and it made me laugh. Something like, you know, something that just is from the heart. And um, sometimes you see these letters called um, I love you letters because you're sharing your thoughts from your heart regarding your personal property. And then also oftentimes you include final instructions, you include um, where all your um, all your advisors, where all the assets are, the keys, um, passwords, all that kind of thing. So what you're giving is um, really peace of mind and clarity to your family in a in a stressful time. That's why it's called an "I love you" letter. I love that. So there's an expression that says, "Own nothing but control everything." So do, do assets need to go into a trust to protect them? Or how do you feel about trusts? Yeah, so the questions I always say when we talk about trust is to protect who and protect from what, right? So that's mm -hmm. the question. So who are you protecting? Is it your spouse? Is it yourself? Is it your kids? Is it your grandchildren? And what are you protecting them from? Is it probate? Costs? Is it estate taxes? Is it spendthrifts? Is it creditors? And um, and so on. So trusts work in a lot of different situations, and they have a lot of different goals. So it really depends on who you are, what your family is like, your goals, your tax situation, and so on and so on. And um, you know, trust are complex, right? But um, so it's important to understand what they are, what, how much control that you are giving up of an asset while you, when you put in trust and are you comfortable with that, right? So sometimes people look at trust and they think, oh, I'm going to do that for tax savings. But then the ramifications of that them, but then they want to use all the assets and they can't get them. And they're like, oh, I didn't want that. So understanding the pros and the cons of each type of trust that you're implementing is really important. And I'll just say one quick thing also. Um, one quick thing is one of the most important um, roles in a trust is the trustee. And a lot of times we see people naming family or good friends um, trustees. But before you do that, really have a conversation with the person and ensure that they have the time, the temperament, and the training to take on that responsibility. And again, because I have been working for so long, like I can't tell you how many unhappy best friends and family members that 
regret the fact that they said yes, because they had no idea about what their responsibility was. Okay. We're running out of time. So I just wanted to make sure we cover this area. Um, for the issue of gray divorce, um, what's the uh, biggest issue yeah. for women when facing the possibility of divorce later in life? Like what do women yeah. need to look out for to protect themselves? Yeah. You know, what's so interesting with gray divorce is that most, um, when you look at the stats, it's being initiated by, um, by women. But the things you have to look at are what assets am I getting, right? So um, great example is um, I'm getting the house. Fine, mm -hmm. you're getting the house, but do you have enough money to maintain that house? So what type of property are you getting? Are you splitting up? And um, are you getting all of the retirement assets? Then you have to pay tax, right? So understand the property that you're getting, the tax ramifications of the property, and the maintenance required of that property. Um, what is your health care going to look like if you're not working? Do you, have you been relying on your spouse's health care? Long-term care, right? So now you're going to be um, on your own. What are, are, you, are you protected in, in case of long-term care needs? Um, estate planning, right? So you need now to make sure that your estate planning, your um, accounts are titled correctly, your health care proxies have been uh, changed if they were your spouse, designated beneficiaries, all those types of things. And then availability to credit, right? Now, if you were if you're not working or if you were a two-income person, you're only a one-income person and your credit, may, the amount of credit that you may get is different. So all those things are so important when you look at um, the gray divorce. Okay. Um, I wanted to take one, uh, a couple questions from the audience. Um, we um, have a question from Rahish, who asked, while you're alive and taking RMDs, what's the less taxing ways one can transfer wealth to a child? Well, RMDs, um, one of the things that you can consider is doing a, um, a Roth conversion, and that's not even taking RMDs. And why I say that is, is, is because you may pay the tax the income tax today on that conversion, but what you're doing in essence is reducing your estate if you're subject to estate tax by the amount of tax that you paid. Then secondly, what you're doing is you're, if, you, if you, your kids inherited an IRA, they would have to pay income tax. So you're giving them a gift of the income tax without paying in essence gift tax. Okay. Um, and we have um, from Rusty a question of kind of the like the big picture question for all, everyone that is considering retirement. What's the best way to make sure you don't run out of money in retirement and outlive your savings? The best way is to do an analysis. Like you have got to do it. And it's, it's spending, spending, spending. So um, so understanding um, how much you're currently spending, um, how that aligns, as we talked about in the very early part of the show, um, doing an analysis, doing a plan, 
and seeing um, based on projections, am I going to have a wealth surplus or am I going to have a wealth um, shortage? And if I have a wealth shortage, a projected wealth shortage, what do I need today to do today to change that? Do I need to we um, do I need to sell my house? Like what what actions can I take today to ensure that I don't run out of money? Okay. And the last question um, from the audience. Um, so Neil asks, how many um, some financial planners recommend not telling your family how much you're leaving them? And in some families, they will not be inclined to make savings decisions because they're expecting money down the road. So where do you stand on, do you tell your family members how much you're leaving them ahead of time? You know what, That's a, it's a great question and it's so dependent on the family. Um, I, um, you know, I am a person that truly believes in communication um, and so it's about, again, going back to the family wealth mission statement, right? Having connection, having open discussions, having conversations about expectations, but it depends on, it really depends on your relationship with your children, um, your, the dynamics of the family, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Susan. This is all we had time for today. Thank you for being here. And we hope everyone listens tomorrow to our next episode. Barron's Deputy Editor, Alex Yule, and Associate Editor for Technology, Eric J. Savitz, will discuss the outlook for tech companies and individual stocks. Thank you for listening. Be well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.